Good morning, church. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Right? You ready? He is risen. All right. Got to get the formalities out of the way. So a lot can happen in a week, and I'm not just talking current events, because if you've been paying attention to current events, a lot has happened in a week, um, specifically around Israel. But biblically speaking, a lot can happen in a week. Between last Sunday, Palm Sunday, and today, Resurrection Sunday, uh, Christ continued rebuking the religious leaders. Uh, During that week, he told them that my house shall be called a house of prayer. You have made it a den of robbers. You can see that in Mark 11, for example. Um, Jesus was anointed with oil during this week, a very expensive ointment. As a matter of fact, the the disciples, specifically Judas, complained about the fact that this oil was used to to anoint Jesus because we could have sold this oil, right? And And we used the money to help the poor. But as Jesus told his disciples when he was anointed with the oil in Matthew 26, you can read this. He says, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. So Jesus was prepared for burial this week in between last Sunday and this. Jesus enjoyed the Last Supper with his disciples. And of course, as we know, Judas, Jesus was betrayed by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. Now, 30 pieces of silver isn't a lot of money. I mean, I don't know if you've ever done a study on it, but 30 pieces of silver was not a lot of money. It wasn't like Judas was becoming wealthy by betraying Jesus. Matter of fact, 30 pieces of silver was the exact price paid to the master of a slave if and when his slave was gored by an ox, which means that it was the price of compensation for the accidental death of a slave. That's what 30 pieces of silver was. Now, prophetically speaking, we see 30 pieces of silver in a couple different places throughout the Old Testament. But specifically, we see it in Zechariah. We see 30 pieces of silver given to Zechariah for his work as a shepherd. And when you go to Zechariah 11 and you read this and see how it plays out, Zechariah goes to the people that he was working for and he asks them for his pay. And this is exactly what he says. This is in Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. He says to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And it says, and they weighed out his wages, 30 pieces of silver. And then the Lord tells Zechariah, he says, throw it to the potter. The Lord tells Zechariah, Take those 30 pieces of silver and throw them to the potter. And so Zechariah says, right, because it's sort of a sarcastic comment. Zechariah says, those 30 pieces of silver, the the lordly price, he says, uh, at which I was priced by them. Because remember, he left the price up to them for his wages. So Zechariah took the 30 pieces of silver just as the Lord commanded him. And he threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. It's an interesting little picture in Zechariah chapter 11. So they, right, so they pay him the 30 pieces of silver, which was the price paid for an accidental slave, slave's accidental death. That's, that's what, that was an insult. It was meant to be an insult to Zechariah. That's all they thought that Zechariah was worth. 
And so returning the insult, God tells Zechariah, right, throw it to the potter. Just throw it to the potter. So Zechariah does exactly that. He tosses the money into the house of the Lord, gives it to the potter. So why do I bring up this reference? Well, this reference in Zechariah, this uh, picture that we see here is uh, a prophetic event. It's uh, prophetically accurate to what happens when Judas betrays Christ. Because in Matthew 26, when Judas betrays Christ, uh, it says, and one of the 12 whose name was Judas Iscariot, he went to the chief priest and he said, what will you give me if I deliver him, Jesus he's referring to, over to you? And it says, and they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Right? That was all they thought Jesus was worth. 30 pieces of silver. It was meant to be an insult. Now later, after Judas had betrayed Jesus, Judas was so overcome with guilt and so overcome with remorse, knowing that he had betrayed innocent blood, you remember what Judas did with the 30 pieces of silver. He returned the money. Right? He went back to the same religious leaders that paid him, the chief priest that paid him the 30 pieces of silver, and he said, take this back. I, I, I can't take it. Right? Jesus is innocent. I've done wrong. I can't take this. So he threw the money back into the temple to the chief priest. He threw it back. You see this in Matthew chapter 27. And what did the Jewish leaders do with the money? Well, they weren't going to take it and put it back into the treasury because they considered it blood money. So what did they do with it? Well, they used it to buy a field from a potter. That field would be called the field of blood at the time that the Gospels were written. Thus fulfilling this vividly accurate prophecy from Zechariah about 30 pieces of silver and throwing them back to the potter. And that field, of course, is the same field in which Judas hung himself. So Judas betrayed Jesus. And of course, we know Jesus was arrested and Jesus was put on trial. And many of the same Jews that worshipped Jesus when he entered the Jerusalem on a donkey now rejected him and demanded that Barabbas was released instead. And, and the, the, the interesting thing about that was that, you know, they were making Jesus out to be some sort of a political insurrectionist. But Barabbas was actually the political insurrectionist. And they demanded that he be let free. Right? Luke 23, 25 says, he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. What was, what was their will? Their will, the people's will, was that Jesus be crucified. I mean, Pilate could find no guilt in him. They just went over, they, just did, they released him to the will of the people, basically. So the people made a choice at that point, at Jesus' trial, and what did they choose? They chose Barabbas over Jesus. Now, interesting, Barabbas means son of a father. Bar means son Abbas, it's father, son of a father. And literally it means, when you look at the root of the words, it means God-given son. Isn't that kind of interesting? Because the irony, of course, is that Jesus is God's truly given son, the one whom they rejected. Right? Jesus was the son of God, the one and only son, whom God the Father gave to us. So that all who believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so they took Jesus, and he was crucified. And it was brutal, 
We're not going to go into all the details. But it was brutal and violent. He was whipped and kicked and punched and spit on. How many of you have seen the movie, Passion of Christ? How many people have seen it more than once? Not too many people, right? Because once you watch it, you don't really want to watch it again. That's how powerful the movie is. It's almost that time for us to show it to our kids, actually. It's horrific what he went through. There was probably not a spot on him that wasn't covered in blood. He was whipped and kicked and punched, spit on. They shoved a, a crown of thorn onto and into his head. It was cruel torture. There were nails driven through his hands and through his feet. There was a spear stuck in his side. Jesus died. He didn't swoon or faint or perform some fantastic magical act. Jesus died. Even the Journal of American Medical Association couldn't come up to any other conclusion when they looked at the biblical evidence of the crucifixion. They said, no, Jesus died. There's no way someone survived all that. There's no way someone was pulling a trick on everyone. And later he just got down, you know, and the disciples whew, took him away. We fooled everybody. Jesus was great. No, right? Jesus died. The Bible tells us that he gave up his spirit. It wasn't taken from him. He willingly gave it up for you, for me, for all of us, for the whole world, because of his great love, right? Because of his great love, he gave it up. Right? It tells us that the Bible tells us that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But that was just the beginning of things. That was just the beginning of things. When Jesus cried, it is finished, or when Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was, this was not a cry of defeat from Jesus. I mean, the disciples might have thought it was. As they didn't fully understand what was going on. They maybe thought their world was coming to an end, but when Jesus said these things, when he cried, it is finished, he is not saying that he is defeated. It was just the opposite. It was a victorious cry. It was a cry of victory. That's what we're going to read about today. We're going to read Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 9 for the resurrection story. It says, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared and they found that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, very important, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for this life-changing event. Historically, there's been nothing like it ever. Now it's changed not just us, but everyone who puts their faith in Christ Jesus. It is the foundation of our faith. And we pray, Lord, that it's not something we take lightly, that we just continue to be reminded of it daily as is core 
to our walk with you. We just thank you for this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. The significance of Resurrection Sunday, of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is not something that should be covered up with, you know, I'm not picking on Easter, but it's not something that should be covered up with Easter eggs and, and chocolate bunnies and free Chick-fil-A sandwiches. And, you know, as some churches are in the habit of doing, they, they've turned Easter into a circus on Sundays. The resurrection is not a circus act. It was and it still is a world-changing event. It is the most significant event in history ever. Now, I want you to, to, to think back, you know. Think back when you're going through school. Think back as you're growing up and as you're learning and you're learning history and you're learning all these things and all the stuff that, you know, has happened in the world in your lifetime, right? And, and then think about resurrections, Okay? Start trying to pare all that down to all the resurrections that you've heard about in your lifetime, right? That you've been taught about that were so significant that you still remember them and talk about them today. Think about all the ones that have happened throughout history. Which one do you think about the most? I mean, I'm going to give you a little bit of time, and just in case, in case you have so many, you got to kind of pare them down, right? Of all the life-changing, world-shaping resurrections that have happened, historically speaking, what's the first one that pops into your head? Yeah, it better be. <laughs> because it's the only one that's actually happened. Right? I mean, yes, there are other religions, and I mean, other older pagan religions, such as the Babylonian Empire and the, the Egyptians and, and stuff that have stories about resurrecting people from the dead. I mean, everyone, every culture, in a sense, has their own twist on a spring resurrection story. You have, you have Ishtar and Tammuz, which was taught by the Babylonians, and the, and the Phrygians had the tale of Addis, who was brought back to life during spring by Cybele, which is the fertility goddess. And the Greeks told the myth of Persephone, who was kidnapped by Hades, who was allowed to return or was resurrected every spring from the underworld. The Hindus have the story of Savitri, who somewhat tricked Yamraj into bringing her husband back to life. Right? The Buddhists have the tale of Bodhimharma and his one shoe, Right? In Norse mythology, you have Odin who sacrificed himself on a tree and was pierced in the side. And for nine days, he hung there dying. And then he was reborn and resurrected. Even Superman died and was resurrected right? in the comics. The difference is, of course, unless you're a historian or a comic geek, right? or you've done deep dives into mythology in your spare time because you have so much, Right? These myths and these tales and these comic book fiction that I mentioned here, you've probably never heard of. Because they've been forgotten. They're hardly mentioned. For the most part, they're from ancient cultures or nations that no longer exist. And they're tales of old that, if anything at all, just showed how supposedly powerful or possibly benevolent their gods were. But they offered no hope to anyone on a personal level at all. None. I mean, the closest you come is the Egyptians. The Egyptians had the tale of the tale of Orisus, Osiris, sorry, who was resurrected by Isis to be the god of the underworld. Right? And the whole idea of embalming and mummifying pharaohs through, you know, historically speaking, came from this tale of Osiris and Isis. 
And the pharaohs thought if they followed this mythological legend and they did their, they, they followed all the rituals and, and they got, you know, uh, embalmed and mummified using all the exact same thing that the mythological tale told them, that possibly they could conquer death just as, as Osiris had done. And it wasn't just the pharaohs because eventually all the common folk right, in Egypt started doing the same thing when they died. They would get themselves mummified right, and they'd go through the, all the exact same rituals and everything like that. Yet, what does history tell us? Every pharaoh's tomb that we've discovered and dug up over the years have one thing in common for the most part. What's that? They're still in it, right? The pharaoh is still there in his, in his casket, still mummified. It didn't work. It didn't help him because it wasn't true. It's not real. It was just a tale. But unlike the rest, the resurrection of Jesus is still remembered and still talked about 2,000 years later. It's still changing the lives of people 2,000 years later. It's the most documented and significant event in history. And the reason, of course, is that it actually happened. It actually happened. You see, any historian who's worth his salt will agree, the one, that Jesus lived, and two, that Jesus was crucified. Right? There's too much evidence to support those things. Any historian says, well, I'm not sure that Jesus even ever existed, shouldn't be a historian. Right? Because there's too much evidence to support the fact that Jesus lived and Jesus was crucified. Now, even though they don't all agree on this, there is also an enormous amount of evidence to support the fact that he was resurrected. And not just from the disciples. And not just from the women, right, in his group who saw him as well. Not just from the 500 brothers, according to Paul, that he appeared to at one time which were still alive for the most part when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, I think it was, which would have been some 20 years after his resurrection, after the resurrection of Christ. But all kinds of actually historians, Jewish historians like Josephus and other people like that wrote about the fact that, that the Christians were saying that Jesus was resurrected. And the disciples and the apostles, they never recounted a single word. They went to their graves. Most of them were martyred for their faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and they never changed their story. If it was some sort of con game, the minute you threatened to kill them, they probably would have changed their story. But it wasn't. It was true. It was true. It actually happened. Right? It's, Jesus died, and he rose again. But we're not going to go through all the historical evidence this morning because it really isn't the historical evidence that changes people's lives. See, the truth of the resurrection of Christ Jesus is the evidence that comes from your own life, that came from the life of the disciples, that came from the life of those in the early church who gave their life to Jesus. Peter said in Acts chapter 2, when he's speaking to the crowd after the Holy Spirit had come, right at Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit had come upon them, Je Peter says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. That was the crux of their story. That's what everything was built on. The resurrection of Jesus 
Well, guess what? You're a witness to that as well. And if you're not, well, then you can be, right? You're a witness to the resurrection of Christ Jesus. It's C.S. Lewis who said that Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And let me tell you something, if you didn't know this, when dead people start coming alive, people notice, right? And I'm not just talking the walking dead. When dead people come alive, people take notice. When they see something that was dirty and unclean, washed and made new, people take notice. So we're going to focus on this this morning, this idea of a new creation. And our verse for this is 2 Corinthians 5.17, which says simply, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. What does that mean? First of all, we see the importance. I mean, there's a lot in this one verse. There's a lot. But notice it says that to be a new creation, one of the things that's happened is that the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When it says the old has passed away, it means it's died. So death is involved in this process here. Death is involved. But not just that. You have to look at where it starts. Right? It starts with, if anyone is in Christ. So in order to be a new creation, you have to be in Christ. That's the only way. Right? If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has died. The new has been risen. So what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, simply put, it means you have to be born again. It means you have to be born again. Right? Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about this in, in John chapter 3. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This, of course, confused Nicodemus for many different reasons. <laughs> right? Nicodemus was like, whoa, dude. Are you seriously saying that someone's got to enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born again? And Jesus was like, no, that's not what I'm saying, right? That's not possible. What Jesus tells him, he says, listen, what is born of the flesh is flesh, but what is born of the spirit is spirit, right? See, the Jewish assumption was, and probably still is, I I honestly don't know. That since they descended from Abraham, they were automatically assured of going to heaven. They were descendants of Abraham, golden ticket, automatically going to heaven. So when Jesus tells Nicodemus, listen, in order to enter into the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. Nicodemus is like, what are you talking about? I'm a descendant of Abraham. I don't need to be born again. I was already born. I've gotten my golden ticket. Jesus tells him, no, you don't, right? See, they thought that they inherited their salvation through their DNA. Many people, not just Jews, think this. 
The same idea for us would be thinking that, well, you know, I go to church at least twice a year. I go on Easter and Christmas. Therefore, I'm a Christian, right? Or my parents were Christians and their parents were Christians, so therefore, I'm a Christian. I've inherited it. I must be a Christian because my parents told me, right? Mommy, am I a Christian? Yes, you are, son. Okay, right? That's not how you're a Christian, Right? It has nothing to do with your parents. It has nothing to do with your grandparents. It has nothing to do with how deeply devoted your family is to Christ. If you haven't made a personal commitment to Jesus, if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus yourself personally, you are not a Christian. Right? But all good people go to heaven, right? No. No. You see, there's, there's a mathematical equation, and there's more than two parts, but I'm only going to go over two parts of this mathematical equation for you. And I don't like math, so, you know. But there's mathematical equations throughout the entire Bible, and it's really kind of annoying. But the mathematical equation is this. Like I said, there's, this is the first part. Sin equals death. That's the first part of the mathematical equation. Sin equals death, Right? Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, right? Everyone, you, me, everyone. When we are born, we are born into sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All, everyone, no one is immune to it. No one. So Jesus says you need to be born again. You need to be made new. Literally, the word for born again in the Greek means to be born from above. That's what it means. That word for again in the Greek means from above. That's how it's translated in every other verse in the New Testament that uses that word, from above. It means to me you were born from above. Well, being born again is being born from above. You need a radical conversion. You need to be born of water and spirit is what Jesus says. But it involves death. That's the that's the like the crux of it. Because what we didn't understand is is that before Jesus, we thought, well, wait a minute, no, we're living, we're alive. And Jesus says, no, you're you're dead. You're dead in your sin. We thought, no, 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 you got it backwards, right? But it's true. Without Jesus, though we were alive, we were actually dead. But with Jesus and dying to Jesus, now we actually live. And sometimes we're like, I can't wrap my head around that. It seems confusing. It is confusing, but it's true nonetheless. Giving your life to Jesus involves death. It does, you know this. Giving your life to Jesus involves death. Right? It tells us in Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Right? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Romans 8.13 tells us, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you live. Right? What are we putting to death? We're putting to death the deeds of the body. We're putting to death what is earthly in us. We're putting to death our flesh. Right? When we just read 2 Corinthians about becoming a new creation, it said that the old has passed away, right? What does that mean? That means the old has died. That's your old, your flesh, right? What is earthly in you? 
the immorality, the evil desires, the evil passions, putting those to death. You want to become a new creation? You have to put those to death. One of the problems with progressive Christianity today is it says you don't need to put those things to death. That you're fine with those things. But that's not what the Bible says because the Bible says if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. New creation, the old has passed away. And if you come to Christ and you're wearing the flesh and you're still in the old and you don't put it to death and you claim to be in Christ, you're not a new creation. I'm not saying it's an instantaneous overnight thing. We all know that our sanctification is a lifelong process. But coming to Jesus involves death. We have to put to death the old self. Jesus is never going to leave us in our grave clothes. He's going to tell us to step out of them. Ephesians 4, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. I've had that conversation with people. That is how I am, they say. Right? Here's the struggle. I'm a Christian, but I struggle with these things, and this is just how I am. And I often say, well, no, that's how you were. That's not how you should be in Christ. You're continuing to hold on to the old self. Kill it. Right? Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Right? Galatians 5 tells us, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You get the picture? Being in Christ involves death. It involves what? It involves crucifixion. It involves crucifixion. Well, the second part of the mathematical equation then is this, right? If sin equals death, well, the second part of the mathematical equation is death equals life. Death equals life. And Jesus himself testifies to that. He says in Revelations, more than once in Revelations, describes himself in ways like this. He says, right, I am the first and the last. He who died and came to life. He said that in Revelations 2. In Revelations 1, he says, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. That's important. Very important. Because when Jesus died, he didn't stay dead. He rose again. Right? Jesus was resurrected. He has the keys of death and Hades. What does that mean? That means he conquered death. Jesus died, defeated death, rose again. I mean, I find it interesting to ponder the idea that I've died because I'm not physically dead. And even though some mornings I wake up, I swear I'm dragging my body out of a grave, (laughs) I haven't died, right? But I have. I have died. Right, the Greek word for died is apothnesco, and it can suggest a natural physical death but it also suggests that you perish by means of something. And that something, or in this case, someone, is Jesus. It tells us in Romans 6, it says, For if we have been united, which also can mean planted in the Greek, with him in death, 
like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Death equals life. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who had died has been set free from sin. Listen, if, if you're dead, if you put off the old self, if you've crucified the old self, guess what? You are set free from sin. If you're still struggling with the bondage of sin, something's not been crucified. Something's not been put to death. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ is being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, once for all. He doesn't, he doesn't have to put Jesus back on the cross. He's not on the cross anymore. Right? Catholic churches, he might still be up there on the cross, but he is not on the cross anymore. Right? The life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Is that what you consider yourselves? Dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus? For those in Christ, the resurrection has taken us from death to life. See, those in Christ are living proof of the death and the resurrection of Christ Jesus. You, if you are in Christ, are living proof of the death and the resurrection of Christ Jesus. We were the walking dead, but now in Christ we are a new creation. A new creation. A new creation is not a creation that was just something that was painted over. Right? It's not just a refurbishment. I'm just going to fill in the little holes and sand off some of the rough edges and repaint some hair up there that you were missing. Right? That's not a new creation. That's not what it's being referred to biblically. I mean, there are some people who can do some great jobs restoring things. And they look like new, but they aren't new. There's some lady out there who takes those evil, what are those dolls? Bratz dolls, those evil Bratz dolls, right? If you've ever seen those in the stores. And she strips off all the paint off the, the face of the Bratz doll, repaints them so they look like a normal child. Right, yeah, what are they called? Tree chains? Tree chains, yeah, that's a new creation, right? They looked evil. And now they look normal, right? That's something washed clean, basically. We're a new creation. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. And that's where our hope is. In that is our hope. Hope is found in the death and the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Because without the death and the resurrection of Jesus, none of this would be possible. None of it. You would not be a new creation. You would still be dead in your sins. Your life would be futile. Your faith would be futile. Right? But it's not. It's not in vain. Why? Because of the, res the death and the resurrection of Christ Jesus. And through that, we have eternal life, and we've become a new creation. So you might be saying, well, 
I don't feel like a new creation. I mean, what exactly is a new, what should a new creation look like? I'm still, I mean, I'm getting older and I walk slower and I'm, you know, my back hurts all the time. And you're telling me I'm a new creation. Well, it's not a physical change necessarily. A new creation is a life set free from the power of sin and death. A new creation is living a life for Jesus. Jesus, who knew no sin, was the perfect sacrifice, right? Who knew no sin, yet he became sin on the cross, was the perfect sacrifice. The Lamb of God, right, who came to take away the sins of the world, right? Christ died, he defeated death, and rose again. And us in Christ, we are now living a life for Jesus. We're a new creation. Listen, he didn't do that, like I said, to leave you in your sin, sentenced to death, right? Can you imagine? He wouldn't have gone to the cross, if he was just going to leave you in your sin sentenced to death. He defeated death so that you could have eternal life through him. He knew what the torture was going to be like. He knew what the pain was going to be like. He had never experienced it before in that way. Remember, up to that point, they hadn't whipped him and beat him and punched him and kicked him. He hadn't had a crown of thorns shoved into his head. But he knew that stuff was coming. That's why when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying to the Lord and he's sweating blood, he said, Lord, if there's any other, any other way, take this cup from me. But he says, not my will be done, yours. He knew it was the only way, the only way that they could restore people back to God. The only way we could be saved from the bondage of sin and the penalty, which is death. There was only one way. And so he obediently went to the cross. And just like his resurrection, right, his death and his resurrection, he tells us in, in, in Hosea 6, 2, that after two days then he will revive us, and on the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. His resurrection was for us to defeat death. It was for us to live a new life in Christ. It was for us because of his great love for us. Jesus isn't going to leave you in your grief. He's not going to leave you in your pain. He's not going to leave you in your shame and your regret. He doesn't want you to sit there. He doesn't want you to wallow there. It's not what he's looking for for your life. He takes that away. He washes you clean. He raises you up. He resurrects you. He gives you a new life. You are a new creation. That's a new creation in Christ Jesus. Jesus makes you a new creation. Jesus isn't just a t-shirt to wear or a patch to put on your jacket like he's a sponsor, right? You know how the sponsors have all the labels over their race cars and all the things sewn on their jackets. You even see it with golfers and everything. They have their, they're wearing their sponsors' hats. They got their sponsors' labels on their, on their shirts. Jesus isn't a patch to put on your coat. He's not a t-shirt to wear. Well, you continue to live your life of sin, but I'm sponsored by Jesus. No, you're not. Because if you were, you'd be a new creation if you were in Christ. See, if you're a new creation, you've been reborn in Christ. You've been born from above through the Spirit of God. And the truth of Jesus then becomes manifested in and through your life. 
That's what it tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.11 that says, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Do you know that? That as you live your life for Jesus, you've been given over to death for Jesus' sake. But there's a reason. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. The truth of Jesus becomes manifested in and through your life. The proof of the resurrection is that it makes the perishable imperishable. It makes the dishonorable honorable. It makes the dead alive. That's the truth of the resurrection. It takes your life of sin and it turns it into a walking testimony for the glory of God. That's why you can have these people. Who you, I mean, you may even know some of them or have watched some of them online whose life, their background came from from all kinds of evil things. I mean, there are people who were gangsters and murderers and, and all these different kinds of background, but then they met Jesus. And now their life is a testimony to Christ. And some people have a hard time reconciling. Wait a minute, you were, whoa, man, you were a crazy man back here and, you know, hunting people down and killing people. I mean, look at Paul, hunting down Christians. And Jesus met him on the road. And Paul's life from then on was a testimony to Jesus. The proof of the resurrection is that makes the dead alive. It takes your life of sin, turns it into a walking testimony for the glory of God. It turns you into the righteousness of God. Christ's death and resurrection has made us righteous before God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you know that you're the righteousness of God? You are in Christ Jesus. That's part of being a new creation. You're now the righteousness of God. A.W. Tozer put it like this, the only sin Jesus ever had was ours, and the only righteousness we can ever have is his. The proof of the resurrection lives in you because the Spirit of God dwells in you. The proof of the resurrection is the power of the resurrection in your life. It is Jesus working in you and through you for the glory of God. That is the proof of the resurrection. The resurrection is a joy that cannot be stolen from you. As Spurgeon said, well, that's a quote from Spurgeon. Right? For the sake of that joy, that is what led Christ to go endure the cross. He said, for the sake of the joy of what lied before him, what lied before him, it was the cross. He endured the cross because of the joy that he knew that you would be receiving through his death and resurrection, because of his great love for you. Jesus said, my joy I give you. That's the joy that took him to the cross. He's given you that joy. It's a joy that cannot be taken from you. Like I said, the resurrection is a joy that cannot be stolen from you, cannot be taken from you. And it's all made possible through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. None of this is possible without the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. None of it. That's why we celebrate this day. And we should celebrate it every day because our walk is not just one day a year on Easter. It's seven days a week, 24-7, right? And we need the power of the resurrection, a resurrected life, a new creation. We need that in our life every day. And it starts in Christ, right? It all starts and ends with Jesus. But it all comes down to a choice, just like the, the thieves on the cross next to Jesus when he was crucified had a choice. 
One of the thieves told Jesus, he said, save us. Come on, save us from the cross. You're the king of the Jews. You're the son of God. Whatever. Come on, man. Come down from that cross. Save us. And the other thief rebuked the first thief. And he said, listen, we're on this cross because we deserve it. We're on this cross because of the crimes we've committed. This, this is our just rewards right here, is this cross. But Jesus, Jesus is innocent. He doesn't deserve this. He basically prays and repents to Jesus right there while Jesus is next to him on the cross. And Jesus says, you will be with me, right? You will be with me in the kingdom of heaven. That's a choice to make. They had that choice to make when they could have set Jesus free, but instead they chose Barabbas. It's a choice to make. Following Jesus is a choice to make. You have a choice to make. But if you know people, they're like, man, I just, I just, I need something new. I need to be new, right? I want to start over. You're like, well, you can become a new creation in Christ Jesus. It starts in Christ. You have a choice to make. There's only one way to be saved. There's only one way to be born again. It's a personal choice, right? You have to make it for yourself. Others can't make it for you. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Acts chapter 4 says, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Guess what? It's only Jesus. Yeah, so many people think today that they're, oh, it's not just Jesus. No, it is. It's only just Jesus. Everyone has a different road or a different path that they take that may lead them to Jesus, but eventually they're going to get to Jesus, and there's only one door. It's Jesus. And they have to make a choice to step through that door. Because there's no other door that's going to get them to heaven. No other door. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, right? Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He's proven this. And our lives should testify to that. 1 Peter 1.3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are in Christ if we've been born again. And we've been born again to a living hope. A hope that we get through Jesus' death and his resurrection. That's the truth. The whole truth. And nothing but the truth. Right? We need to continue to make that choice daily. Sacrifice our lives daily so that we can continue to be a new creation and our lives testify to the power of the death and the resurrection of Christ Jesus. And we can point people to the hope, to the living hope that's found through that. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that you just continue to build this up and, and strengthen us with this word, Lord, so that we can continue to point people to Jesus and be a light in the darkness, so that we can continue to point people to the living hope that is found through the death and the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Don't let this just be a, a one-day-a-year thing, Lord. Let this be a 24-7 thing. Every day of our lives that testifies to the truth of the resurrection. Thank you, Lord, for making us a new creation because of your great love. And I pray, Lord, that we continue to live lives that glorify you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name.
Amen.